Well, good evening and welcome tonight. We'll go ahead and get started with our time together. Thank you for coming out tonight. Um, I think I see now how to get a crowd here on Wednesday night. <laughs> so after this uh, series, we'll have a four-week series on politics and then... Uh... <laughs> I'm kidding. So let's pause tonight. Let's bow before the Lord. Let's... Uh, recognize his provision, his healing hand, his guiding hand. Pray for his continued strength and comfort and sustenance and guidance in the days ahead. Would you bow with me? Father, we come before you this evening and we recognize that you are a great and mighty and awesome God, that there is no one like you, that you are lofty and majestic and splendid, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you are the eternal and almighty maker of heaven and earth. And yet, God, you are a God who cares for us. You are a God who is near to us, who has made us to know you and to, uh, to be reconciled to you through Jesus and to commune with you. Lord, despite our rebellion against you, you desire for us to be your children or to receive an inheritance to live eternally with you. You know everything about us. Lord, you know the days of our lives. You know the, uh, the challenges we face. You know uh, the surgeries You know the illnesses. Uh, Lord, you know the emotional distress. You know the hardships. You know all that uh, is involved in uh, in this life. Uh, For you became one of us. Lord, you were tempted. Your son, our Savior, was tempted and tried uh, just as we are. Yet he did so without sin. You have a God who can sympathize with us, Lord, who understands what it's like to be one of us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that tonight. And we thank you that you are uh, a great physician, that you are a healing God, that you are an almighty and perfect uh, creator and sustainer, redeemer and friend. And, Lord, guide us now by the presence and power of your spirit. As we look at your word, as we uh, consider your word and how... Uh, it uh, speaks to, to every issue of life in some way or another. Father, give us wisdom, give us humility, give us uh, a sense of your, your Spirit's presence and guidance and grace. Father, likewise, we pray for our students who are serving you uh, today in Toronto. Lord, we pray that you would continue to sustain them and strengthen them and use them to speak your truth. Lord, help them to do so in love. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to uh, the gospel and homosexuality. This is our first session of uh, four sessions, and it's no secret at all uh, that this is an extraordinarily divisive issue today, perhaps uh, the most divisive issue of our present church culture. We cannot ignore it. We cannot dismiss it. We cannot make light of it, nor can we deny the deep impact that homosexuality is having upon our culture, upon our neighbors, and upon us. The purpose of this study, and I want to be clear tonight, we're going to sort of set the the groundwork and the framework tonight for the weeks that that will follow. But the purpose of this study is is not uh, to elevate this particular issue above or beyond what the Bible says about other issues. But our purpose is to humbly yet confidently consider this pressing and public contemporary issue in light of God's timeless truth. And so here's what I want us to do over the next few weeks. 
Uh, we're going to look at what the Bible says about this issue. We're going to look at what the Bible says about homosexuality, both directly and indirectly. And we're going to do so, uh, as the title of our, our time together suggests, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we do so in light of the gospel is because Jesus is our interpretive guide, so to speak, for the scriptures. In other words, as Christians, we, we read the Bible who live on this side of the, the coming and the living and the dying and the rising of Jesus in light of who Jesus is and what he has, has done. Pastor and Professor Brian Chapel says it this way. He says, our goal as faithful Bible readers is not to try to make Jesus magically appear in every text, but to see where every text fits in this redemptive epic. Jesus is the culmination and climax of the whole story. So the, so the stage is set for him. All that transpires on the stage relates to him, and we do not fully understand anything on the stage until we have identified its relation to him. Now, all that to say, Jesus is uh, the central character of God's Word. So one God is, God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but uh, the fullness of God's story, the uh, mission of God's redemption, finds its climax and its fulfillment and its purpose in light of the coming uh, and the mission, the dying and the rising, uh, and... Uh, casting forward uh, the expectation of his return. We read scripture in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, more on that in a few minutes. But to know what we mean by uh, the gospel, uh, we need to know what... uh, We we need to look at the books of the Bible that are described as the gospels. The gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John that recount uh, the life and the ministry uh, of Jesus Christ. In the opening chapter of John's gospel, the disciple John writes these words. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus came full of grace and truth. Meaning, I think that Jesus came to embody the truth. He came to live the truth. He came to proclaim the truth and to do so with grace. And this first coming of Jesus, known as uh, the incarnation, taking on of human flesh, was the fulfillment of God's promise to save. And it was, was not nor is not a salvation dependent upon human merit or achievement. We know this. It is by God's grace, meaning a gift of his kindness In other words, a central component of the truth is that God is gracious. In fact, the Old Testament authors often characterized God this way. Psalm 103, verse 8 is an example. Uh, The psalmist writes, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is a refrain that we hear again and again in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, this was Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah. This was Jonah's rationale for not obeying the Lord's call to go and to preach the gospel or to preach repentance in Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. 
Long story short, you know how the story goes. The call comes upon Jonah's life. Jonah's called to go and preach. He doesn't want to do so. He knows about the Assyrians, and so he tries to run from God. He goes in the other direction. But finally, after God uh, disrupts those plans and makes it clear that Jonah must go to Nineveh, Jonah goes and he, uh, he, he preaches. He calls the Assyrians there to repent and to turn to God, and they do. And against all the odds, the king of Assyria heeds Jonah's message and issues a decree for all the people in his land to call upon the Lord. And so God relents. He withholds his judgment. Listen to what Jonah chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 say. It says, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He says, now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. That's essentially what Jonah said. God, if you're going to act like that, I don't want anything to do with this deal. When it comes to our topic for tonight, you may be asking, why am I starting here? Because we're not gathering tonight and over the next few Wednesdays to simply talk about homosexuality. Church, we are gathering to consider the gospel and homosexuality. Which means that we come seeking to be led by the Lord come from the perspective of faith in the God of the Bible. We come with a posture of trust in and submission to Him. And I'm absolutely convinced that if we come examining this topic through the lens of psychology or medicine or science or rationalism or empiricism, then we will come to differing conclusions. There's no doubt about it. I don't think I have to convince you of that. And if you don't believe me, then gather a random group of folks and gather around the table and talk about homosexuality and see if you all leave the discussion with a consistent consensus regarding the ins and the outs of this issue. That's not going to happen today. It certainly may have happened 20 or 30 years ago, but that uh, is not likely to happen today. But as Christians... As followers of Jesus Christ, we come with some particular starting points. Some unavoidable presuppositions that guide our discussion and allow us, in fact, I think, compel us to come away with a consistent consensus regarding the ins and the outs of this issue. But we will not do so, church, especially in our day. If we do not begin with certain assumptions. And so before we dive into this topic, let me lay two non-negotiables on the table. This is important for us. First, we need to hear from God. We need to hear from God. Bible says in Psalm 14 verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, likewise, Paul writes, he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, the Bible teaches that there is enough of God's, uh, and there's enough evidence in creation itself to lead us to recognize that there is a God, that we are not Him, and that we are accountable and responsible, that we owe our existence to Him. Now, we don't, we don't learn a whole lot more, perhaps, through creation alone about who God is and the predicament that we're in. There are some things that we can discern, and that's what the psalmist is saying, and that's what Paul is saying. And we're not going to harp on this, except to say that none of us are the authority. None of us are God. Simply through our position and our place in the world, we ought to discern that we are not the authority and that there is a vast gulf between us and God. If we want to know the truth about the controversial topic of homosexuality and and, and a whole host of other things that we could add to that list, then we need to hear from God. We need to hear from Him. And if we don't begin there, then we will never agree. So we need to hear from God. Second presupposition is that we best know God through His Word. We best know God through His Word. First, through His spoken, written, recorded, and preserved Word that we call the Bible. And second, through the incarnated Word, that is, the Word of God made human flesh, that is, Jesus Christ. The fullness of God in human flesh. So if we want to know God and what He has to say to us, then we need to look to the Bible and we need to look to Jesus as He is presented through the Bible. And I hope, I, I, I hope that, that those of you who are regular here know that those are presuppositions that we as a congregation of faith are, are going to begin with. And it comes as no surprise that many folks, though, will immediately dismiss what we have to say about this issue because they disagree with these two presuppositions. And when that is the case, when that is the case, their greatest need is not for us to strive to change their mind regarding the sinfulness of homosexual practice, But their greatest need, church, is to come to know the God of the Bible. The one who rescues and redeems through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like I said a moment ago, I I would imagine that those of you who attend here on a regular basis are not surprised by these presuppositions. But if you are a guest here with us tonight... Uh, then just know that this is the lens through which we are going to consider the gospel and homosexuality over the next few weeks. We need to hear from God. And we best know God through His Word. These are non-negotiables for us. And because these are so foundational, I want to tease this out a bit more tonight. You see, because we need to hear from God and we best know Him through His Word, then it only stands to reason that His Word is our ultimate source of truth. And if God's Word is our ultimate source of truth, then we must stand upon Scripture. We must 
stand upon Scripture. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In other words, we don't make excuses for what God communicates through His Word. We don't discount or diminish anything he addresses in his word. We don't alter or reduce or simply extrapolate what we do like from his word because the moment we begin to pick and choose the portions of scripture we think are beneficial and right while ignoring and dismissing the portions we think are dated or wrong, then we are making a categorical shift from God's word to our word. And that leads us to the next point. We must stand under Scripture. We must stand under Scripture, under God's Word. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. Isaiah records these words. He says, A voice says, Cry out. Isaiah said, What shall I cry out? In other words, a voice says, Say something. Isaiah says, What? What am I to say? And this is the response that he hears from the Lord. He says, All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You see, left to ourselves, we are finite. God is infinite. He is creator And we are creatures. And not only is his presence eternal, but his character, according to his word, is unchanging. His character is constant. He is constant. And because he is constant, his word is enduring. It does not fade away, which is why we sing lyrics like ancient words ever true. Changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. You see, as people of faith, we acknowledge the truth of their content, these words, but also the the purpose in our lives for which they were given. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 help us with this. The author of Hebrews writes these words. He says, for the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. He says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so to stand under the scripture, to, to stand under God's word is to come to it with a posture of humility and submission expecting every time to be instructed and corrected and evaluated. In other words, the Bible's message isn't simply for someone else out there who needs who needs to hear it. It is that. But it is equally for each of us. And so there's no place for self-righteousness when we open up God's word. So we dare not address the issue of homosexuality from a posture of self-righteousness, but from a posture of submission to God's holy and authoritative and unchanging word. We stand upon Scripture. We stand under Scripture. And number three, we read Scripture in light of the gospel. 
You read scripture in light of the gospel. If you want to look at a text with me, a longer text I'm going to read is Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. But we read scripture in light of the gospel. In other words, we, we acknowledge that there are right ways and there are wrong ways to interpret what's in the Bible. So Luke chapter 24, you may remember the account. This is after Jesus' crucifixion. It's not only after his crucifixion, it's now after his resurrection. He's been raised back to life from the dead. And Jesus is out uh, slowly and perhaps subtly interacting with folks in his glorified body. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, we read, Now that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What a question to ask Jesus. Hear the irony in that. What things, he asked, verse 19, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Jesus said to them, verse 25, he said, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so, friends, Jesus says that the scriptures that preceded his coming, that is the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, are about his coming. In essence, he says to these two walking along the road, if you knew and understood the trajectory of God's word, then you would have recognized that the Messiah's role, my role, was to give myself As a sacrifice to save you. To die in your place. In order to pay the price of your salvation. But they missed it. So did the disciples. As the resurrected Jesus then later appears to the disciples. In the same chapter we read verse 44. He says this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. In the law of Moses. The prophets. And the Psalms. And that's. A shorthand way of saying all of the Old Testament. Moses representing the law. The prophets representing the prophetic books. The Psalms representing the poetic books. Wisdom literature. It says then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. 
Now, I don't want to belabor this point, but feel the need to clearly convey that there are right ways and there are wrong ways to interpret God's Word. How many of the New Testament letters contain warnings about false teachers and false teaching in the church? Go back and look. Just about every single one of them. And for those of us privileged, and we are privileged, to live on this side of the coming and the living and the dying and the rising of Jesus Christ, we must interpret God's word in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, is the central message of the two testament canon and the interpretive lens through which we now understand the rest of the story. We, we cannot read the scriptures now living on this side of the fulfillment, the coming of Christ, without considering that truth. And because of both the content and the nature of the gospel, we not only read the scriptures in light of the gospel, but we must address the culture in light of the gospel. We must address the culture in light of the gospel. In his book, Is God Anti-Gay? Pastor and author Sam Alberry says it this way. This is good. He says, what the Bible says about homosexuality needs to be looked at as part of the wider message of the gospel. The announcement of what God has done for us in Christ and the need for repentance and faith. He says, Christians who want to explain the Christian faith to gay friends need to know that what the Bible says about homosexuality is not the only thing they need to explain. And it is probably not the first thing or even the main thing they need to focus on. And so in our attempt to understand what God says about homosexuality, we must not lose sight of the central and life-giving message of restoration and reconciliation and transformation through the blood of Jesus Christ. So therefore, church, we... When we address the issue of gospel and homosexuality, we dare not do so from a position of pride or superiority or hypocrisy that fails to account for our own sins. But we do so from a posture of humility and submission and trust in the mighty and just and gracious God of the Bible, believing and declaring the clear truths of His Word for the glory of Jesus and for the good of the world. Amen? That's pretty weak. Amen? Amen. Some of you probably don't know what you said amen to. So to review, we need to hear from God. And we best know God through His Word. We must stand upon Scripture. We must stand under Scripture. We read Scripture in light of the Gospel. And we must address the culture in light of the Gospel. And now that we've established those necessary and foundational, I think, presuppositions that we Christians bring to this issue, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Well, to understand... The Bible says about homosexuality, we need to understand what the Bible says about marriage, about sexual intimacy, and about sexuality. And so that's where we'll begin. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And there we read, So God created mankind in His image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Let me read those words again. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, male and female is is God's idea. Sex is God's idea. We didn't invent it. God did as a gift and a sign of his goodness. You don't have to read very far in the Bible to see that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 provide complementary accounts of the creation story. Genesis 1 is is a wide-angle view recounting God creating the physical world and then filling it with creatures and life to live and dwell within it. Then we come to Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, the focus narrows. It narrows drastically, zooming in on God creating the crown of his creation, man and woman. Chapter 1 concludes with the creation of humanity and God's image and the charge to rule over the rest of creation. God said to them, Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, rule over the rest of creation. And the way they will establish this dominion over the rest of creation is by increasing in number and filling the earth, i.e. through reproduction. Genesis chapter 2, though, presents the, the male-female distinction in a differing way. God creates Adam. And then he says, Genesis 2, verse 18, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. You see, the point is that humanity is incomplete with just Adam. God says this. Why? Because left to himself, Adam cannot fulfill the mission for which God made him. For this, he needs someone who is like him, yet unlike him. The remedy is God's creation of the first woman. Unlike the animals, Eve corresponds perfectly to Adam. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. The man, Adam, said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Listen to Sam Alberry again on this text. He He writes, he says, she is like him in the right way, made of the same stuff. And unlike him in the right way, woman rather than man. She is a different example of the same kind of thing as him. She shares his nature, his vocation, and his very life. It is this complementarity that leads to profound unity between them when they eventually come together in sexual union. And then, in the very next verse in the Genesis account, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we read, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So this account, I think, establishes a couple of key truths about sex, sexuality, and marriage right at the beginning of God's Word. Number one, God designed sexual intimacy 
to express and strengthen the unity between Adam and Eve. But this story isn't just about some ancient couple known as Adam and Eve. This isn't just for those who are interested in their uh, their ancient genealogy. Their story, according to God's word, sets the pattern repeated for future generations, generations that follow. You see, right in the context of, of this story, the author of Genesis steps back, gives a, a broad observation, a general observation. He says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. In other words, what we read about in Genesis 2 becomes the foundational pattern for every marriage union since. Like many, many generations later, when Jesus himself was questioned about marriage and divorce. This is what Jesus said in God's word. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so Jesus, through his own words, his own response, he he affirms God's design. He affirms God's design for male and female in marriage and saying that God is the one who joins couples together in marriage and calls them one. The physical, the emotional, the spiritual intimacy that happens through sexual intimacy is designed by God to knit couples together. And so sexual intimacy is part of God's plan To irreversibly unite two people together. Which is why casual sexual encounters outside of God's good design for life together in marriage lead to brokenness and pain and devastation rather than the intimacy and unity He designed for man and woman in the the marriage union. Regardless of the picture that we see on television and in our culture today, it's a lie. Of course, this is not the message portrayed through our culture today. But I I don't think that we can look at the issue of the gospel and homosexuality without looking at God's design for marriage and for sex and sexuality. And so this is where we need to begin. And this is where we'll conclude our time together tonight. Let me cast forward just a little bit so you kind of know where we're going in the next few weeks. Uh, Next week... We'll look a little more about what the uh, we'll look a little more at what the Bible says about God's design for marriage. In other words, if we're really going to understand this issue in light of God's word, we need to unpack a little bit more about what God says marriage is. And then we'll look at where the Bible addresses the issue of homosexuality. And so we'll spend the next couple weeks looking at key biblical passages to help us grasp God's design. And then my hope is, and we'll walk through those rather slowly, a bit slower than we've sort of navigated, navigated these principles, these introductory principles tonight. But then my hope is that in our fourth and final session, we'll talk uh, more about gospel responses to those who deal with same-sex attraction. All that to say, some of you may have noticed there's uh, a few books out on the table in the foyer. These are uh, books uh, that I would highly recommend that address this issue. Um, they're all fairly short. 
simple books, but uh, thoroughly express um, the truths of, of God's word. Uh, you can see a sign there, sort of uh, on the honor basis. If you would like any of these books, you can purchase them for $10 each. That's We're not making money on that. We're just recouping uh, what we've spent, and uh, we'll, we'll keep them out as long as uh, as long as there are some left, and uh, if they're all taken, then we might look at getting some more. So I would suggest any and all of those. And if you want further reading on the issue, then I could probably point you in that direction as well. Sound good? Y'all awake? Okay. Focused. That's what I like to hear. I bet. Should we have a quiz? No. All right. Well, I know we're a few minutes early tonight, so let's Let's close out our time in prayer and anticipation. Would you bow with me? Father, we do thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you for the chance to come together as your people who, uh, Lord, recognize that, that you are God. That you alone stand apart and above. That you are the maker of heaven and earth. Lord, that there is none like you. That you are holy and incomparable. You are righteous. Lord, you're perfect in every single way. You are a God who is just and mighty, Lord, a God who can do great things, who has done great things, who is doing great things and will continue to do great things. And you are a God who holds us accountable for sin. Or that you do not tolerate sin in your presence because of your holiness. And Lord, we acknowledge tonight that because of that truth, none of us deserve to be in your presence. We have all fallen short. Lord, every single one of us has rebelled against you and gone our own way. And even so, Lord, you have devised, long before we ever showed up, you devised a perfect and gracious plan to send your son on a rescue mission to this earth that we might be forgiven and saved, restored and reconciled, that we might know and live with you, not only now, but for forever. Father, we thank you for that gospel message. Lord, may we be a people who believe it and who stand upon it and proclaim it and live according to it. Father, I thank you for this group that's gathered tonight to look at your word together. And Father, I pray that the things that we've covered tonight, Lord, that are helpful, Lord, that we would remember them or that we would return to them. And Father, I pray that you would guide us in the weeks ahead that we might have truly a gospel perspective on this issue in our day. Lord, may this not simply be an exercise where we come to glean information that we want to pass on to someone else, Lord. But we know that is important. Father, we know that we are called to proclaim your truth. Help us to do so. But Lord, may this also be a time where we are challenged and convicted and exhorted and encouraged to walk faithfully according to your word. Lord, lead us as we depart tonight. Lead us to that end for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said.